Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. In a path-breaking new book, today's guest, Jennifer Onjung Ro, asks how delay and haste in early modern French theater subverts the temporality of heteronormative politics and sexuality. Jenny is the author of Queer Velocities, Time, Sex, and Biopower on the Early Modern Stage, published by Northwestern University Press in 2022. Ginny is professor of French at the University of Minnesota and serves as the co-chair of the Arts and Design and Humanities Imagine for the project Dreaming Up the Change Disability Makes and leads the CLA Interdisciplinary Collaborative Workshop on Refusing Disposability, Racial and Disability Justice Toward Another World. Ginny's scholarship has been supported by the National Endowment of the Humanities, and a Somson postdoctoral fellowship from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me here. The first thing I want to say is congratulations on the publication of Queer Velocities. Um, what has been the best thing about reaching this milestone? What, what has been surprising about book publication? Yeah, thank you. I um, I am very excited that the book is finally out. Um, it came out during the pandemic. I actually submitted final revisions March 2020. <laughs> and then it was a long journey to have it um, out in print. Um, and it's been really heartening finally being able to go to conferences and interface with a lot of my colleagues who've told me they've um, assigned chapters to their graduate students and responded favorably to it. Um, one thing that I guess surprised me is that when I began writing this book, which was my dissertation, um, doing a queer analysis of these really canonical tragedies was basically unheard of. And I encountered a lot of resistance. Like I had an article that was just rejected continually um, because uh, the reviewer said it was anachronistic to do a queer analysis of early modern French tragedy. And so the field was really quite conservative, I would say, in contrast to maybe early modern English studies, which really embraces these queer, eco-critical crip, uh, perspectives. And um, I think that what's been really heartening since the book came out is that I feel that people there's been a shift in the field and I feel like people are becoming more open to queer trans, these sort of critical perspectives on um, in early modern French studies. So that's been really surprising and wonderful to see. That's excellent. Um, it, it's wonderful um, that you're, you're doing this work and, and uh, sort of uh, kind of breaking new ground um, in, in, with these texts. Um, I'd like to to um, move to a general overview of your book. What do you see as the main contribution of queer velocities to scholarship on early modern French theater? Yeah, um, so I'd like to think 
that the main contribution of queer velocities is the concept of queer velocity. Um, and in my analysis, I really think that it could be completely portable and applicable to a variety of time periods and genres and language traditions. Um, and in my book, I suggest that velocity, which is a concept I borrow from physics, um, indicates a speed or slowness with a directional component. And so in my analysis, I suggest that this direction might be aligned with heteronormative priorities like progress or reproduction or children, but it also might point directionally away from these ends, sort of toward queer attachments or non-reproductive configurations. And um, so I feel like queer velocity itself might be a portable concept. Um, I think that one of my other contributions of the book is to highlight a methodology for how do we think about queer sexualities in the past, moving away from like the Where's Waldo of identitarian searching. So I was really interested in, in like thinking of a way of how we can track queer affects and attachments and relations and flows of sensation um, that don't actually necessarily sediments in a, in, a, in a queer identity configuration. Um, so sort of these more subtle, fleeting, ephemeral moments of, of queerness that I find erupting um, surprisingly in the theater. And then I guess the last, the, your, to go back to your question about what this book brings to French early modern studies is that one of the narratives that we tell about French 17th century theater is its relationship between um, order and power. So how the theater is a really organized form and, and there's this ideological relationship between the orderliness of uh, the stage and the incitement to order and obedience um, under an absolutist government. And I wanted to um, highlight that there is also a biopolitical relationship between the theater and, um, and governments. It conditions what Foucault might call uh, capillary disciplinary practices. So these are the ways that uh, apparatuses like the theater might shape micro rhythms of attachment or intensities of relation. So not, not necessarily top-down domination, but a more um, subtle shaping of the ways that we can be and be with each other. Um, and so I'm hoping that this book shines a light on the ways that the theater uh participates in these more subtle, very insidious ways. Um, and I analyze ultimately its contribution to chronobiopower. So this is a concept put forth by Dana Luciano and Beth Freeman, that it theater shapes not only life, but the time of life. This is something I learned from your book. And, oh, and that's it, so cool. It, yeah, and an insight that was like startling and, and kind of brilliant. Um, that uh, these increasingly precise timekeeping devices of 17th century France gave a framework for reflecting on one's own private desires. Um, a fact that I learned was over the course of the 17th century, clocks and watches went from a margin of error of like 1,000 seconds per day to 10 seconds per day. So it allowed for more exactness in how right. people thought about the movement of time and haste and delay as you discuss, right? 
Yeah. And I, I just found that observation, which, which is not my discovery. It was made by historians, uh, including Carlo Cipolla, um, and elaborated on by French scholar um, Roland Rosevskis. But I just found that mind blowing <laughs> to imagine a, a moment in, um, in history where you for the first time had personal and portable and precise timepieces, like you, the, your time became your own in a new way. And that just is remarkable to me. Um, and I love the strangeness of the seismic shift. I was like, what would that feel like? How would that be? Um, and so I took that as one of my points of departure to understand or imagine what that could have meant for historicizing new feelings of temporality and new experiences of time. Um, and in my book, I suggest that the theater yielded a new onto epistemology of temporality. So it's not just a new way of like measuring and tracking time or keeping time precise, but a new kind of time, like an entirely new species and, and sensation of time itself. So, yeah. Uh, sorry. The first <laughs> chapter of your book is focused on the pamphlet war around uh, Pierre Corneille. Corneille, uh, yes. Corneille, oh, thank you. Corneille's um, El Cid. Uh, what was the quarrel of El Cid, and why did the French Academy intervene into what was largely an aesthetic or literary debate? Yeah, this is such a good question, and one that I actually wish I had elaborated on a little bit more deeply in my book, because for French scholars, it's completely obvious that the French language is considered a patrimoine or a national treasure. And so this is kind of like the, the language must be protected and maintained. It's almost like a, like a museum painting or like the Louvre or a monument, right? And so the Académie Française is this institution that doesn't just dole out prizes. It also is the institution charged with safeguarding and maintaining and protecting this national treasure. And so there is there's there's intense political investment in making sure that the language is not used and abused in the wrong way. Um, and so the Académie Française intervened because um, Le Cid um, was such an immensely popular play um, at, for its time, but it also ignited an uproar about the scandalous affects that were part and parcel of the play. Um, so in the play, a woman's father is murdered by her fiancé. And sort of despite her throes of grief, she still loves him. And at the end of the play, they end, she and her fiancé end up betrothed again through some maneuvers of the king. Um, and so in short, this play, which is super popular, is an example of how sexual impropriety and temporal impropriety intertwined. And so what really um, interested me was that in many of the pamphlets that were for and against the play, they were debating the play's content and like the specific violations of X or Y character. Could they do this? Could they not do this? But they also were anxious about um, the possibility that the public would begin to imbibe these entertainments willy nilly and sort of be exposed to these pleasures and transgressions, both of sexual impropriety and temporal impropriety. And so the Academie Francaise is like, 
this is getting out of hand. We need to intervene. And so they they adjudicated. This is sort of one of their first official rulings. They 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 laid down the their evaluation of the play's um, violations of the rules. And and as we know, in 17th century French theater, there was a lot of investment in um, what I analyzed in my chapter. Two qualities. One was called uh, bienseance, which is the rules of propriety, and vraisemblance, which is the rules of verisimilitude. And so, unlike English tragedy or English drama, um, French neoclassical tragedy had to abide by these really strict rules, including the fact that um, things like bodily things, like eating, death, pregnancy could not be shown on stage. And also that the plays had to adhere to these quote unquote Aristotelian unities. So the play had to take place in 24 hours. It could only be in one location and there could be only one plot. There were no, no subplots. And so these sets of arbitrary rules condition what they, the academic influences believe to be the right way to represent things on stage. And so um, in their ruling, they really um, tasked Corneille with violating a lot of these rules of propriety and, and decorum and, and comportment. And so um, it's a moment wherein we see the rules being shaped and begin to shape public affect and the idea of what is an appropriate experience in the in the theater and and what it was an appropriate um sense of theatrical pleasure that's so interesting so fascinating um in your second chapter you look at delay and slowness in jean racine's uh 1667 play uh andromaque the title character in that play expresses desire for her dead husband's ashes and uh, delays in remarrying. What is uh, provocative or compelling about the uh, expression or exploration of, of time in, in that play? Yeah, thanks. Um, so this is my favorite chapter in the whole book. And this was the chapter that got the most pushback when I tried to s- submit it as an article. And I feel a little bit vindicated because in my readers' reports, both of them were like, "This is the finest chapter in the manuscript." I was like, "I knew it." <laughs> no, but I, um, I, I really. This was kind of where a lot of the genesis of my ideas for the book came from. Was my interaction with Andre Mac. Um, and Andromaque has been a puzzle for French scholars because basically it happens in the aftermath of the Trojan War. And Andromaque is taken captive. Everyone she loves is dead. And her cap, and including her husband, Hector. And her captor, Pyrrhus, says, either marry me or I will basically kill your son or give him up to the, to the Greeks to be taken away. And so she's faced with this impossible decision. And the puzzle for French scholars has been, why does she hesitate? What mother would hesitate to save her child, right? And so some people were like, oh, she is a nationalistic heroine. She's standing up for her country and her people. Other people have said um, she's overly attached to the memory of her dead husband. So there's been multiple readings of like what this delay means. Why is she hesitating? And I 
reinterpret the space of delay not as a strategy of national heroism, but actually as opening up a space for attachment. And I was really compelled by how in the play, Andre Mac keeps on calling out to her husband's ashes. And she says, les cendres, les cendres. Um, and she dialogues in conversation with them and she pours libations and she goes to consult them and she worries about the ashes reaction. Um, and for me, this really resonated with Mel Chen's book, Animacies, to think about a range of animate matter, not just human versus object but there's ways in which inanimate matter, quote unquote, can begin to affect us in subtle and strong ways. And Kathy Carruth has pointed out that the form, the ash, the material of ash stands temporarily for two things. So it could be both ruin like the, the aftermath of fire and it's the remainder. It's the only material thing that remains after fire has obliterated anything else, there is still something left. That is a surviving bit, the, the raw material bit that lasts. And so I was in, in, interested in the way that Andre Mack's recourse to ashes um, kind of leans into both these temporalities. She wants the ash to be a testament to the ruin. And she says back to her captor, how dare you try to marry me? Do you not remember all the havoc and the destruction that you wreaked on Troy? Um, there was ruin, right? But there's also remainder, her husband's ashes, and she's clinging to this memory. And so she wants there to be this dual temporality um, that could sort of linger and, and last and, and live on. And so um, I reinterpret the space of delay not as this moment of being a bad mother or a Trojan heroine, but really is opening up a queer velocity, a queer attachment that doesn't move along the temporality of what a mother or a widow should quote unquote do, but as, but rather um, as being invested in and connecting to something that may or may not be apparent when we look at her action with the heteronormative lenses of what we expect behavior should look like. Let's turn to the third chapter, um, which is uh, about Corneille's uh, poly, polyute. Uh, I, I apologize to <laughs> all French speakers, and I feel like the French Academy might uh, barge in at any moment. And, <laughs> Come chastise you and I, give you some <laughs> I know, disciplining. Um, yeah, um, which dramatizes, uh, that play dramatizes a vexed relationship between two eventual Christian martyrs. Uh, who resist the governor's desire to avoid their martyrdom. Uh, how does the play imagine a character uh, hoping to synchronize his velocity with a, a dead friend? Yeah, this was a challenging chapter for me to write. I think because Polyopt is a play that is so... Um, overtly overtly about male friendship and this intense they like Polyot and his friend Nayak say many times to each other how much they love each other and how much they want to be together. Um, and in uh, John Boswell's book, which is about sort of early homoeroticism in Christianity, this is one of the, the three 
queer, like main queer couples or, or martyr, martyr pairs that he identifies. Um, but in scholarship about the play, there hasn't really been, it hasn't really been noted or addressed, right? And so I was like, why are people overlooking this explicitly, you know, homoerotic, intense male-male friendship that's happening here? Um, and I, th- I think that something that I was interested in was kind of the idea of hiding in plain sight. This was hiding in plain sight. And for me, the velocity that um, that was wrought from this was really the ways that they try to match their speeds with each other. And so one of the friends would be like, I'm racing toward my martyrdom. I want to go break all these pagan idols. Why aren't you running with me? And he's, and the other person says, I too want to come with you. I am going as fast as you are. I, I will, I will be by your side. And so they even at some point begin repeating each other's words. And so um, there's just like, haste or fastness with which they are urging each other on, but also an, an anxiety that one would be one would be faster than the other, one would hasten toward one uh, a death faster than the other. And that would mean, of course, separation or being apart from each other. And so um, I look at the play as the queerness to me is in their attunement of their velocities and their, their, their idea, their, their desire to um, match each other perfectly. And I use the musical idea of their harmonic, um, which, which was kind of out of left field. But for me, that was really this idea that in music, when there are, when there is perfect harmony between notes, um, there's an extra supplemental tone that can be produced. And in the early modern period, a lot of music, a lot of, um, music theorist like Descartes would were like where does this come from and they're like we don't know but it ha- there's perfect attunement and something extra happens and we don't understand it but it's there and so for me that was the figure of hiding in plain sight this idea of perfect attunement that produces something extra that we don't really understand why or how but it's there and um that was for me the figure of of their of their speed and their queer velocity That's wonderfully evocative, and um, also that idea I think is is beautiful and elegant. Um, the fourth chapter of the book focuses on uh, Racine's sixteen seventy play Berenice. Uh, that that play dramatizes a kind of queer love triangle that insists on a kind of circular temporality, one that brings us back to where we began. Is, is that? sort of uh, what you're arguing in that chapter? Um, I think that what's interesting about this chapter is that when I was writing it, a lot of the, like my, as you know, in its dissertation form and then thereafter, a lot of the editors and even my advisors were like, wow, this, this chapter is very repetitive. And I was like, but it's supposed to be <laughs> circular. It's doubling back. And every time it doubles back, it picks up new things and it creates this sort of snowball accumulation of different kinds of affects. Um, what it's I, wonderful that the, the structure of the chapter itself mirrors kind of what you're discussing. Right? I hope so. I hope it came across. And I, hope, I hope readers don't think that it's repetitive because I was being sloppy. <laughs> um, but I think that, um, 
the play for me, what was interesting about the play was that scholars have critiqued it for being too repetitive (laughs) or making a lot out of nothing. Right. And, um, the the one of the critiques said oh it's almost as if this play was written as um like a rhetorical exercise like the kriya where you sort of take one phrase and you see if you can rewrite it 20 different ways so if you take a phrase i miss my friend and then you you rewrite it in 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 a certain style and then you rewrite it in, an, in another style and a more vulgar style and, and and so it keeps on you just keep reiterating the same very simple plaint or, or observation. And I was like, well, wouldn't that be interesting if it actually was this, this repeated recursive temporality at hand? Um, and so I am, because the, the meat of the play really is just a really long goodbye. And the King, um, Titus is ascending to the Roman throne um, but Roman law does not allow foreign, foreign-born queens or wives or consorts, and so he must say goodbye to his beloved Berenice. Um, and at the same time, there is a third character, Antiochus, who is um, Titus's best friend, but also in love with Berenice. And so the three of them form this sort of queer love triangle where they each ask each other to speak on behalf of the other person. So Titus is like, Antiochus, go tell her I can't, I can't be with her. And so they 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 keep on shifting around each other. But what is at the core of their relationship is that they need all three need to be together in order for their, um, I call it sort of almost a polyamory desire desire that for that to circulate. Um, and I think that a lot of analysis of the play has been confused about the figure of Antiochus. And they're like, this play could have worked without him. Like, like t- the, the, the emperor could just be like, bye, Berenice, this is really sad. Goodbye. And they're like, why, why is he here? And I was like, he is a necessary third. And so in, in French, um, the word for neutral and neutered is the same. And so there, there are all these moments where he, Antiochus, paints himself as being sort of neutered or emasculated, but also neutral in, insofar as he's able to be this voice or this empty vessel or conduit for their love and affection to flow between each other. And so um, I, I really, I analyzed the idea of a necessary third and the circular temporalities and velocities that are wrought from that um, from replacing it and, and using each other as a conduit to, to express emotion and desire for each other. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. To your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. To look ahead to the 18th century, you argue that uh, French theater 
um, shifted its representations of these multiplying velocities to non-Western settings. Uh, and that uh, recontextualization complicated ideas of a universalizing normative temporality. Um, how did Voltaire's 1732 tragedy, Zaire, uh, offer a portrait of being together otherwise? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so while I said at the beginning of the podcast, queer velocities can transcend genre and language fields and uh, and um, time, time periods, I chose to analyze Zaire, I think, for two reasons. One is because it's often considered one of the last, quote unquote, French tragedies to adhere to these neoclassical unities. And so a lot of my book's argument has hinged on the fact that queer velocities are everywhere, they're with us today, but there's something about the French neoclassical theater and this imagined 24-hour frame that because it is this contained fixed form or box within which we can see these moments of, you know, hastening or delaying or recursiveness more clearly. And so I wanted to pick, um, point to a play that carried on this tradition in a, in a slightly different way. And the second thing is something that I wish I had done more deeply in my book, but I was able to gesture too lightly um, in this conclusion was that um, temporality is also not only sexualized, but also racialized. And so in uh, Johannes Fabian, the anthropologist's book, Time and the Other, he speaks about this concept called the denial of coevalness. And so it's the way that we imagine, quote unquote, primitive societies to be lagging behind Western modernity or out, outside, almost outside of time, right? So we might think of like indigenous people as outside of time and outside of, of progress and experiencing a different kind of, of, of time. Um, and so I was interested in a play that would illustrate this clash, this imagined clash between a civilized Western progress-oriented temporally normative um, society and the play takes place in um, an imagined, um, un, unspecified um, Muslim uh, context in which um, French Christian soldiers are attempting to wrest control of Jerusalem uh, from the Sultan Orozman. And the protagonist, Zaire, is a French captive who has been raised since babyhood in, in this sort of palace of the Sultan. And she has this very generous, enlightenment, universalized view of temporality. And she says, like, you know, temp time and repetition engrave our hearts. And so if I had been born in France, maybe I would have been raised a Christian. And here I'm kind of like, you know, I want to take on the religion and the beliefs that I'm here. And she falls in love with the Sultan and they're betrothed to be married. Um, however, there's a plot twist <laughs> and her, um, this French crusader comes back to rescue them. And she says, I don't need to be rescued. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm about to be, I'm about to get married. And at, at some point she realizes that this crusader is her brother and that she is, is sort of, and he is, he's infuriated that she would 
change religions and that she, and that or she would convert to Islam or that she would marry the sultan and so um a lot of the play is sort of a temporal tug and tug of war between her brother who's saying convert convert you must hasten to be like you know rebaptized and the sultan who says why are you delaying marriage what is going on and he believes that she's in love with her brother with this man he does he doesn't know this her brother um and so there's this sort of othello like twist where the the primitive other quote unquote is enraged and and taken over by fury and he impetuously hastens to to kill right to kill her and in in and out of um jealous sort of moment of jealous fury um and so it's almost the death of her universalized temporality it's the death of this idea that you know we can all be okay we'll all we'll all be the same and it's um it's it manifests or, or puts puts to fore this idea that the barbarian has a different time that's irrational and affectively different and and it's velocity this this velocity clashes with with western velocity and so i'm trying to think about ways in which we can look at use queer velocity to think about racialized velocities but i only really get to it in a little bit in the conclusion so that's kind of where i wish i had been able to deepen uh, my research and understanding more one thing you mentioned earlier is that um, queer velocities uh, began as a dissertation and i think um uh, our listeners might be interested in what that process was like taking the raw material of a dissertation and then turning it into a, a published monograph can you talk a little bit about that process yeah um it was it was a bumpy process but i know people have had had more tumultuous journeys from dissertation to book um my degree is in comparative literature. And so the dissertation as originally envisioned and planned was going to include English texts. And so for me, um, a lot of the journey from dissertation to book involved me saying goodbye to chapters that I had written or um, proposed bits of things that I thought were going to be included in the book and sort of streamlining my concepts. I had way too many theoretical concepts. And so, and for me, I was like, I'm going to include ephemerality and I'm going to include affect theory. And I'm like, I, and I had to actually be okay with folding that into the body of the analysis and not making everything in the introduction about 20 different theoretical concepts and sort of honing in on one idea, which is queer velocity. Um, And one thing that I really benefited from was the fact that, as I mentioned before, there was there was really no one else who was doing queer 17th century French studies. And so I had to end up make making you know had to make friends in different kinds of fields whether it was in uh, theater studies or especially early modern English studies um, to learn from their models and to really absorb a, a wider range of methodologies and and approaches um, and I think that actually helps my book a lot because I was able to um, bring to the table 
things from 19th century American sexuality studies to medieval studies to, you know, Shakespeare criticism and kind of weave that together to make my own apparatus um, and my own approach. And so I think what was a main challenge that required me to go out there and, and be informally adopted by these other fields allowed, allowed me to, um, to sort of cobble together, I think, what feels like a more robust and maybe original methodology. And so I think that maybe my advice to dissertation to book trajectory people is that if you feel like you are alone, you may find friends or resonance or sympathetic approaches in fields that may not be your exact subfield, but it might, it might come from art history. It might come from something else. And so the, um, being open to, to weaving together different kinds of approaches might enhance your trajectory. When you talk about the, the dissertation as needing to be streamlined a little bit, I feel personally spoken to. Yeah. I, I think we all do <laughs> because when we're writing our dissertations, there's so much, so many beautiful things that we encounter that we're like, oh, I want to write on this and this. And then at the end of the day, you're like, oh, no, all this cannot go into the book. Um, and the other the other thing that I've, I found really challenging was um, working working with translations or through translation, right? And so a lot of the, the things that I'm looking at in terms of temporality and velocity in the French plays... Um, Racine is one of the most famously untranslatable French playwrights. And it's really hard because, um, because he has a limited vocabulary and it's, it's so interesting. I think some they've, the, you could do it. The, the, the concordance, there's actually a concordance of all 12 of his plays. And in the concordance, I think there's something like maybe 3000 or 5,000 words. I always forget the number, but they're very delimited vocabulary, which is, totally in contrast to someone like Shakespeare, right? And so what Racine does is that he'll take one word like les yeux, which is eyes, and that means maybe 12, 15, 20 different things at the same time in the same line. And so does it mean like my gaze, my glance, my subjectivity, my being, this porosity between you and me, it could mean anything. And so he uses one word to mean so many different other words. And so when I was working with my, when I'm doing a deep analysis or close analysis of a line or two lines, it was really hard for me to convey that in English through the English translation, if that makes sense. So I, I'd be relying on the English translation and I'd be like, look, look at this word eyes. And, and then <laughs> if you weren't able to be in the, the French translation, it would, it's a little bit, it, it, I wanted to make sure that people could understand it, even, even if you didn't read French. And so that was an extra challenge was um, working between and outside of, of the linguistic specificities. I, I also... Um love that idea of, of building community of, of, of a project being enriched by conversations across disciplines. It, it can feel really intimidating, I think, because sometimes it feels like there's suspicion, you know, that one is an interloper in a different field or something like that. But it's kind of wonderful when you can build those affiliations and connections. And there's also a freedom in being the outsider, 
right? If you, if I am an outsider to a Shakespeare conference and I say, I don't remember the plot of King Lear. Can you tell me that again? And then, and then sometimes, sometimes that, that freshness of perspective might allow for different forms of questions um, to emerge. So it actually is really refreshing and nice. And so I'm, yeah, I guess that's my, my comparative literature background. It's like, hey, we can all be friends. We can all help each other. So, yeah. And you can break down some of the reifications, you know, like yeah, all the yeah. experience agree that this means that. And then you come to it with fresh eyes and, and can um, be sort of unencumbered by, I don't know, some of the... Um, yeah, the more recalcitrant right, exactly. assumptions yeah. and ideas that we, we bring to the yeah. table. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'd also like to ask you about teaching uh, these plays, French theater in general. Um, can you talk about perhaps a moment that was generative in the classroom or, or a challenge in uh, sort of inviting students to engage with this work? Yeah, I have become more and more interested in the history of science and the history of medicine. Um, I ended up going down a different rabbit hole when I was researching the history of chronometry or, or the his, or time pieces um, because I wanted to be sure I understood what was happening and, and what was developing when and how that, how that proliferated. Um, and because of my research in that sort of history of science domain, and how much it informed my reading of, of literature and, and theater, I was like, oh my gosh, this could actually be useful for students. <laughs> and so we, um, I taught a version of sort of 17th century French theater, early modern French studies, um, in which students, we have a wonderful um, biomedical archive called the Wangenstein Library at the University of Minnesota. And... Um, I challenged the students or we, we, we kind of use the archives as our laboratory. And so students would read a play in which there would be, let's say, allusions to poison or witchcraft or um, a sea monster or something like that. And then we would go to the biomedical library and they would be able to read pamphlets about, you know, humoral remedies or sea monsters or, or, um, or witchcraft. And so th th it really brought... Um, it really brought those aspects of the play alive because it wasn't just this abstract way of approaching the world, right? To, to historicize the scientific understanding of what a world felt like and could be and a world in which there could be witch, witches and monsters, you know, um, it's important to reconstruct that. And so I, I felt that, that yes, there was beauty in the, the plays that we read and the metaphors and the, and the love relationships and the language, but I felt like my exposure to um, the history of science while writing this play helped me writing this, play, writing this book <laughs> um, helped me rethink my understanding of how I teach an uh, early modern drama. And so that was a that was a really fun, I think, moment for my students and also for myself. Finally, uh, now that this book is out in the world, um, what are you turning your attention to? What's the the book or the class or or other projects that you are excited about? Yeah. Um, so I am working on my second book project, which really came out of the first book. Um, when I was writing Queer Velocities, a lot of the comments and reviewers, criticisms, not feedback, let's say, <laughs> reviewers' feedback, um, 
hinged on the fact that I kept on talking about temporal normativity, temporal normativity. What is temporal normativity? Um, and then the more I started thinking about the construction of temporal normativity, the more I realized that I was also talking about disability and the time of what, what, what's called crip time, right? And so how there are norms of capacity and behavior and, um, and productivity, and that was intimately related to disability studies. And so my, my next project really is looking at um, the formation of ableism, which is sort of the, the privileging or hierarchy of um, able bodies and minds over disabled bodies and minds, and how ableism was iteratively produced through all these kinds of light genres like dance, fairy tales, architecture, um, not these big, heavy neoclassical tragedies that were adjudicated by the French state, but all these sort of more quotidian genres of aesthetics. That, that, and so this ableism in my, in my book, I'm hoping to argue, um, acts as a sieve that winnows out valuable bodies and minds from disposable ones. And I'm looking at the ways ableism was therefore imbricated, intimately imbricated with the early modern construction of race. And so how we think about value and devalue, disposable and um, and capacious. And so we are, I'm, I'm looking at archives from French Louisiana, um, also in, also, military archives, so how the trajectories of disabled veterans. Um, and I, re I really, truly would not have come to this project if I hadn't finished this book and been like, oops, I forgot to, to think about disability and race. And it actually is almost like a, I don't want to say like a part two, but it really is a jumping off point for me to think. And uh, similar to what I was trying to do in Queer Velocities was I don't, I don't want this project to be um, looking for disabled people in the archive or this this disabled body in the archive. I really want to think about the structural, um, the structural constr the, stru the, the structural constru <laughs> the construction of these um, institutions and structures of ableism, right? And so, how instead of finding one disabled individual or a multitude of disabled or racialized individuals, I really want to think about how the sieve gets constructed, who gets to winnow, who gets to, who gets to decide what is useful and not useful or valuable, and not valuable. So that is where I'm going now. And I'm really excited about this new project. Excellent. We'll keep our eyes out for that. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the pod, Jenny. Thank you for having me.